Welcome to the School of Wellbeing. I'm your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker and teacher wellbeing specialist. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and waters on which this podcast is being recorded. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the School of Wellbeing. I hope you have had a wonderful break and are ready for the school year ahead. After taking some time off, I am thrilled to be back sharing wellbeing education with you. It fills me with hope to know that these conversations are having a positive ripple effect in classrooms and staff rooms across the globe. This week, I have had the joy of presenting to big-hearted educators in Queensland as they prepare to welcome back students next week. There is something magic about this time of year, and it makes my heart sing to see school staff buzzing with excitement and enthusiasm for the year ahead. To kick off the year, I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Adam Fraser about his book, The Third Space, using life's little transitions to find balance and happiness. Adam is a human performance researcher and consultant who studies how organisations adopt a high-performance culture to thrive in this challenging and evolving business landscape. Adam has a true passion for the research behind his work, and has long-held partnerships with various universities throughout the Asia-Pacific. He has worked with elite athletes, the armed forces, and business professionals of all levels. In the last 10 years, he has delivered more than 1,500 presentations to over half a million people in Australia, New Zealand, and worldwide. His topics include the psychology of performance, improvement of productivity, transformational leadership, engagement of teams, work-life balance, and the development of high-performing cultures. In this conversation, we discuss why we all need a third space. How do we choose to show up a little better? The importance of reflection and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Adam Fraser. Adam, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about your book, The Third Space, Using Life's Little Transitions to Find Balance and Happiness. What do you hope teachers and school leaders will gain from listening to this conversation? Well, one of the things, a big project we've worked on for about seven years now is called the Flourish Movement. And what it is, is a research project and in a program. And we work with school leaders around sustaining their careers and improving their leadership and their well-being. And what we've discovered is, man, that's a tough gig. Being in education at the moment is so challenging from shortages of teachers, so you're having to cover for other people, you know, the challenges with student behavior, how families view the school, not to mention curriculum reform, and <laughs> there's just so much going on. So. One of the things that teachers and school leaders can do is use the third space in that transition from work to home and in a way where they can leave that work day behind and show up in the home a better version of themselves, as well as use the concept of the third space in the micro transitions of the day. Like how do they go from a conversation with a parent that's quite emotional or frustrating to them walking in the classroom or going into a meeting with some of their peers. So what it's about is using the transitions in their day just to leave what they've done behind, but most importantly, show up as a really good version of themselves. When you say it like that, it makes it so obvious that these transitions really, really matter 
And what we do by default is just rush through everything. We go from the meeting with a parent into the classroom, into duty, into the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then for so many of us, we get home, we're going through the motions with our family, but we're still thinking about work, even though we're at home. Yeah, totally. And look, I mean, to kind of describe it, what our research showed is that these transitions are really important. And the model we use is the first space is what you're doing now. So, you know, we're on this podcast. The second space is what you're about to go into. So I have a couple of meetings after this podcast. And the third space is that transitional gap. Like, how do I move from talking with you about this topic to going in a sales situation? or I've got to have a research conversation with a university. So what it's about is how do I leave behind what I've just done, but most importantly, get my head right for the next thing. Whether that is I just have had a heated conversation with a parent, or I've just had an emotional day and I'm about to go in a meeting with my peers. Like, How do I make the most of that next thing? And because it is such a demanding role, we can drag the day home with us and it affects our mood, our mindset, our behavior. And often, you know, the people that mean the most to us get the worst version of us. And you've given all day to the kids and your peers and the people you lead. And then you walk through the door and you just got nothing left to give. And that resonates with me as an educator and with so many of the educators that I work with. We talk about bringing like this best version to school, like this A-plus version, and then home gets this crappy, tired, can't-be-bothered version. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I hear this so much. And not only in education, but also in whether it's banking, whether it's finance, whether it's HR, the day does require so much from us. And I think if you look at the trends within education, educators now are the social workers of society. They're dealing with family issues, child issues, trauma. It just can take so much out of you. And that third space is how do I leave that day behind or how do I recover a little bit so I can go into the house, have a good interaction, switch off, not obsess and worry about the day. And I love that idea of bringing deliberate attention to transitions and using them as an opportunity to literally get into the next game to take that moment like what does my body need to be doing here where's my mind what's the focus and having that little bit of a pause so what would be the benefit for teachers and school leaders to really focus on this year i mean to nail it down and we spent a lot of time researching this the best transition has three parts to it so the first part is to reflect so reflect on what you've just done now Because as humans, we have a pessimistic bias, we tend to look at, oh, that was crap, or I dropped the ball on that, or gosh, I shouldn't have said that in that meeting. We tend to focus on what's bad. So instead, what we want to do is focus on what was good about that, or what did I achieve then, or did I learn, did I grow, did I improve? And this is not about being a delusional Pollyanna optimist. We tend to only focus on what sucked about that thing I just did. So this is just balancing that out. And what that does is gives us like a burst of happiness and also the mindset we take forwards more optimistic. The next phase is rest. Well, you described it before about how do I just calm my brain? How do I calm my thoughts down? So if I've just had an interaction where my brain's racing and I'm running around, how do I calm it before I move into the next thing? And then the last phase is called reset. And that's simply asking, well, 
what's my intention for this space? Like, how do I have to behave? What do I want to achieve? So if it's a meeting, if it's about ideas or brainstorming, it's like, well, I want to go in there. I want to throw ideas around. I want to be open to other ideas. If it's a conversation with a peer, that's a hard conversation. It's I want to be compassionate or empathetic. If it's a difficult conversation with a parent, it's almost rehearsing. Here's how I want to show up. Here's what I want to do. Here's some of the behaviors that will help me. So it's kind of that reflect, rest, reset. And the way I described it sounds laborious, but we can do it so quickly. And we actually taught this process to triple O responders. And that's a five second gap in between phone calls, but just that ability to Okay, I just had that call, but I have to leave it behind. Centering yourself and then going, on this next call, I have to be very focused. Because obviously, they've got to get the details right. And if they're distracted or they're not in the moment, they can miss things which can be catastrophic. So that's the process of the third space. And ideally, we have those three parts. And sometimes we don't have the time for that. And sometimes we've just got to go, okay, I went through something really emotional there, but I've just got to park it. And I've got to move into this thing and I have to bring my A game and I'm going to deal with the impact of what I just went through later. But right now I've got to show up and I've got to make a decision or I've got to be very strong or I've got to be very empathetic. So that's what the whole concept's about. And it is so powerful to think about those three steps. It's such a beautiful framework to reflect, to rest, and then reset. And as you're saying those three things... I know from working with teachers, they're the three things that they find the hardest, you know, to actually stop, to give themselves permission to reflect, to actually look back because we're so conditioned to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. That's off the list. Here we go with this. That's off the list. Here we go with this. And moving into this year, it would be so incredible for all the educators listening to give themselves that permission to be in this third space. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I mean, it just kind of has countless applications. We taught it to cardiothoracic surgeons who, if they're not in surgery, their day's often seeing patients. So I go from one patient to another. And what they were talking about is that sometimes we get into autopilot. And so often we bring the mood and mindset of the previous thing into the next thing. Like we take a bad day home or we have a bad meeting, it derails our day. And what we got these surgeons to do is every time they walked into an interaction with a patient, they just paused as they grabbed the door handle and we got them to think about, well, how do I want to show up? And one in particular, he says, oh man, this has been so valuable. And what I picture is if my mother was on the other side of that door, how would I like a medical professional to treat her? And he said, I just pause and I think that's a person on the other side. It's not just a patient and it's not just their metrics. It's like they've got emotions, they've got feelings. And so what we found is just even that time, and I'm talking that's a three or four second piece, but it just helps them reset to align their mindset and get better outcomes. Reset to align your mindset. That is sensational. That can be our theme for 2024 to really take this time to reset and align before we move into an interaction. I can think of countless times where I've had a class, it's been completely derailed, things have gone astray, and then we can take that into that next class. But what would be possible if this year we take a moment to stop, 
reflect on there was a few good things amongst that chaos of that class, catch my breath, take a beat, and then, okay, how do I want to walk into this class? It's a different class, different year level, different experience. How am I choosing to show up? Yeah, exactly. And as we've said, we've done this work with so many groups and it always adds so much value and people find it incredibly powerful. So what stops us? Because it sounds like this makes sense. Of course, we need to stop. We need to slow down. We need to reflect. But what is it that gets in our way? Why do we deeply resist slowing down? I mean, it's not necessarily we have to slow down. It could just be a couple of moments where we reset ourselves. But I think, well, there's a couple of problems here. Number one, people don't think about this space. When I present it, so many people come up and go, oh, man, like how have I not thought of that? Because I do it every day. They just say, well, I'm so busy, I just blow through that transition and I don't even think about how I'm moving from one thing to another. And I think it was Duke University in a study showed that around 48% of a person's day, they are in autopilot. Like they're just going through the motions. They're not deliberately thinking about how they move into the next thing. And if you look at it, really those three steps are self-awareness. How do I feel right now? How am I interpreting what I've just done? Can I be present in the moment? And then the last piece is, can I be very intentional about my behavior? Here's what I want to achieve. Here's the impact I have to have. If it's going in for a hard conversation, it's thinking about, well, have I already created this story about the person or am I going in curious? Like, am I open to understanding them on a deeper level or have I just created this narrative and I'm not open to anything else? So it's just one of those universal things that happens to all of us, but we just don't consider it. And particularly the work to home one is a huge one. Like that's the most popular application of it. But most people are on the phone as they're transitioning home or they're working from home and they're at the dinner table or they're in the spare room and then they come out and If they live with other people, they have that interaction and they're still in work mode. They haven't left it behind. Yes. It really reminds me of when I was teaching. One school that I taught at, I literally lived seven minutes away. So the time I left my classroom, got home, it was seven minutes. And another school that I taught at, it was an hour. So it was country school. It was an hour solid highway driving. And I noticed after a few weeks that when I was teaching in that rural setting, Once I got home, I felt like I was a different person. I felt like the day had literally washed off. I had processed all of the things that had happened and I was home. And then reflecting on that, I noticed that the years before, I never felt separation. I felt like work and home was all together. Yeah, that's fascinating you bring that up because that is such a common theme where people go, yeah, I had a 45-minute commute. I moved closer to work thinking it would improve my quality of life. And what happened was I just feel like I used to use that 45-minute period to decompress and I don't have that anymore. And what they talked about is, you know, I would call a friend or I'd listen to a podcast or I'd read a book on the train. And when we remove that, we just don't have that decompression time. And obviously during COVID, we did a lot of research on how people were coping, what was happening. And- What we found is people said, I miss the commute. They don't miss the physicality of the commute. Like people don't go, oh, I really miss sitting in traffic. That was awesome. Or I don't miss being pressed up against a sweaty guy on a train. 
But what they said is, I missed that boundary. And the most common one was working mothers said, that was the only me time I ever got. And it was when I would connect with friends or be social or even just turn off the radio and just have silence. And when they started working from home, they just went, oh, I just feel like I'm always on. And that was another big theme that came out of COVID. When people were working from home, they were working much longer. They felt like they could not turn off from work. There was no separation. So they had to find their own third space if they were working from home. And one guy talked about how at the start of the day, he'd drive to a cafe, get a coffee. And when he walked in the house, he's like, right, I'm at work. And at the end of the day, he said, I didn't need any more caffeine, but I'd drive to a park. I put my headphones in, walk around the park, listen to a podcast. I drive home and I go, okay, now I'm a dad, now I'm a husband. So regardless of whether we work at the dining table or we commute from the office, we've still got to do the same process. Yes, and you're really highlighting how we can use our physical environment for different cues. Like I'm thinking of that movie. I'm not sure what it is, Marley and me, with the dad sitting in the driveway just like, ah, like just catching his breath before he like goes in, like whatever it may be for people. And then I reflect on as a child, both of my parents worked and without knowing it, I think they created their own third space as the youngest of four, like it was a busy house. They would come in from work, have a shower, put on new clothes, like home clothes. I was like, actually, that's a pretty strong cue that, hey, I'm in a different environment now. Suits off, home clothes are on. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because even the physicality of taking the clothes off is like, I'm shedding the day. And we taught this process to paramedics in St. John Ambulance, and we tried not to be too prescriptive. We just said, hey, here's the concept, and we explained it and talked about it, and then we got groups to come up with it. And one of the rural groups came up with their own sort of campaign, and they called it Get Out of the Green. So their uniform's green, but they said, particularly in rural areas, is by the time we get home, the kids are like, I'm late for soccer, or I jump in the car, I've still got the uniform on. And what they talked about, like another group said, leave your boots at the door. So the paramedic is outside. Like when you walk in that house, you're a different person. We've had executives talk about, yeah, I take the suit off. I have a shower. I put on casual clothes. That's one of my transitions. This is one of my favorites. Presented to a group of counselors. So this counseling psychologists and the burnout rates in those guys are crazy. When I did the presentation, he said, I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, all my clients come home with me. Like literally they walk in the house with me and I'm still frustrated about this client and that affects how I treat my children or my partner. If they live on their own, that affects my ability to unwind. And what this one counselor said, I have a carport and I park the car in the carport and then it's just a little walk to the house. But halfway along, there's a tree. And he said, I walk up to the tree and I physically take the patients off my body and I hang them on the tree. And I'm like, don't need that person's crap. He ain't coming in the house. Don't like that one. And he said, the neighbors think I've lost the plot because I actually stand there and I'm picturing I'm taking the person off me and I hang them on the tree and I go, they'll be there tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, I can collect them on the way up, but they don't come in my house anymore. So it's kind of up to your imagination around how you can use this concept. 
Yes, and being really deliberate about this emotional, invisible load, which we all carry in our jobs, and creating some separation, allowing some proactive detachment so we can then attach to what matters most to us at home. I use it differently depending on where I'm coming from because I fly a lot and I present at a lot of conferences. But I'm in the office today and when I go home this afternoon, I'll take my two girls for a walk. The dog will come with us. We go for a walk. Usually my wife joins us. and We just go for a walk as it's getting closer to the sun setting. And we leave the day behind. We get outside. We're energized by the walk. And as I walk in the house, this might sound weird, but I actually use negative thinking to be a better dad. Because as I walk through that door, I just think, man, these kids in a blink of an eye, like one's 13 and one's 10. And I just go, how many more days do you have with them? Yeah, because when they're going to move out or move on, my 13-year-old's starting to get a bit, dad's not cool anymore. So she doesn't want to spend as much time with me. So I just kind of think there's going to be a day where I really miss this. And how do I make the most of this interaction? So rather than going home and seeing them as an inconvenience or as a frustration, it's like, yeah, I don't have many years of this left and I want to really make the most of it. So while I'm thinking about a negative thing, it creates a positive behavior. Yeah, and it really sharpens up your focus on what matters because that's one thing I've noticed about work is that if we're not deliberate, it just sucks up every area of our life. It's like this intense vacuum that will just take it all unless we get deliberate and block out some moments for ourselves. You know, it's interesting when I present this, and it's usually at conference dinners when people have had too much alcohol, they come up to me and they go, oh man, I wish I'd seen that thing 20 years ago. And there's usually a guy, he's usually in his late 50s or 60s, and he comes up and he goes, oh man, wish I'd seen you do that 20, 30 years ago. And they get quite emotional and say things like, I'm proud of my career and how hard I've worked, but my family got the worst version of me. And it didn't require that much. I just would have been a better version of myself. And That's the biggest regret I hear people say, you know, I just could have showed up, be more compassionate or be more playful or more fun or just listen. Feels like that is just so real. It is so real that if we don't stop and amplify these small life transitions and the bigger ones, that is the inevitable destination. If we don't become advocates of our own time and our own energy, that's where we will be delivered. And before I started to do this work, like I showed up as a jerk. I come home, I'm stressed, talking to my kids about why is the house so messy? Don't leave that behind. You know, whose chip packets are these? I would just be so, and I almost saw them as an inconvenience. It's like, do you know how stressed I am? And do you know how much work I've got on? And so many people would say that as I kind of burst in the house like the hurricane. And I'm frustrated. I'm yelling at the kids about their homework. And it's just, you know, it's not about connection. It's just a frustration or another thing to do on the to-do list. Yes. Gosh, that reminds me of COVID times here in Victoria. We were in lockdown for a long time and having my husband home and two young boys. And I felt like, ah, oh, like my family feels like friction. Like they are just constantly getting in the way. And every now and then when I feel like that now, it is that real clear reminder that I've gone too far. 
when my family starts to feel like friction that are just getting in the way of me getting things done, that's that real strong cue that, hang on, I need to reorientate myself here. It's not them, it's me. I had an experience a little while ago in Brisbane where I presented this concept and a woman came up and you know when someone walks towards you and you know that they're pissed, like I could tell, I was like, oh God, she looks so angry. And she comes up to me and goes, oh, this sounds like a concept a man came up with. And I went, well, I came up with it, so yeah. And she goes, well, I can't have a third space because I go home and I start my second job, which is I'm doing all the housework, I'm cleaning everything, I'm cooking dinner, I'm doing, I don't have time for this. And I just went, okay, like, let's have a conversation about this. And I said, look, obviously you've got to have a conversation with your family about roles and who's doing what. And men have got a little bit better, but traditionally and still, women are doing the lion's share of the stuff that happens in the home. And you talk about mental load. Yeah, if they're not doing the task, they've usually organized it or coordinated it. So a real thing is is a lot of people, women in particular, just because of societal conditioning, often go home and feel like I've got this all these other things to do. And what I said to this woman is you've got to have that conversation because obviously there's a lot of resentment and you've got to put some boundaries in place. But the concept's about, well, how do you transition into the home? And I said, well, how would you describe your mood? And she's like, pissed off is my mood because I'm so bloody over it. I work my ass off all day and then I go home and look after all these people. And I said, well, clearly that's having a negative impact on you. It's having a negative impact on the family. And I said, what this concept's about is how do I regulate myself and, and how do I show up? So if I think about my home, I live with my wife and my two daughters. One of my responsibilities in the house is to cook dinner, like plan the food, which is the part I hate the most. I hate the planning. So I plan it. I do the shopping. I do all the cooking, all the prep. So that's my job. So I could go home and go, oh, great, I've been bloody, I'm exhausted all day and now I've got a bloody cooked dinner and oh, I hate doing this. But what I do is I think, well, how do I make this a better experience? And I get my daughters involved. So they get certain jobs, but we have a Sonos system in the house. They get to choose the music. We crank it up. So we're playing music while we're cooking dinner, like so much Taylor Swift at the moment, I could cry. But it's the thing we do. It's an experience. And if they've got heaps of homework, they might be on the bench doing homework, but we're chatting. And it becomes a whole experience rather than just, I begrudgingly have to go home and now do this task. And obviously, there's many days when I don't feel like cooking dinner, but I use that third space to change that mentality and really get into it. So going back to this woman, it's about, well, how do I transition into the home? Am I going to hold that boundary? Am I going to try and make it a much more pleasurable experience with the people I live with? And if I show up a little bit better, are they going to help? Are they going to be more receptive to it? Even I actually had a, a this was a school principal. She saw me present the third space and then she went home, sat a family down and went, how would you describe I come home at the end of the day? And they were teenage kids and they went, oh, you're grumpy and you this and you that. And she said, well, do you know why I'm grumpy? <laughs> because I do all these tasks as well as all the work. And if you want a mum that's in a better mood, what are you going to take on? What are you going to help me with? And they set up really clear expectations. She said it took me a couple of months to really get them in the groove. 
but now they're taking responsibility. Because if you want the fun mum or you want the happy mum, well, you've got to do something to help that. And what she talked about is this totally changed the dynamics of the home. So yeah, I think a very important thing is that often we go home and look at the home as another task, but how do we start to make that well easier to do? And get better at articulating to other people in the house all the invisible things, make them visible on the table and then decide who's going to do what. I know for myself last year, something that I decided is if it's not done by eight o'clock, I'm not doing it anymore. So that means there are times when the house looks like it's been burgled and there's dishes everywhere. And that's just how it has to be because if I don't get that respite at eight, I will just never stop. And it's amazing the difference that small tweak made for me because I knew that eight o'clock I could have my respite, my recovery to go again. And also I find for me exercise is such a beautiful third space. Yeah, you could not have described that any better. Just from a neurochemical perspective, when we exercise, we totally change our brain chemistry, which helps us be more tolerant, which helps us be more compassionate. If you're going to do one thing for your well-being, that's the one you invest in. We had a lot of people in our research who said, I go to the gym, but the gym's nowhere near my home because if I drive home and get changed, then go to the gym, I won't go because I drive home, I'm tired. I have a glass of wine and I'm done. And what they were saying is that I picked a gym close to work where I drive to it, get changed, do my workout, drive home, and just talk about how much better they feel because of the exercise. Yeah, it's such an important one. And it's often something we don't feel like doing. However, by the end, we have the opportunity to process the thoughts, to have that reflection. And then if we add in that new piece of reset, okay, now I've done my exercise, how do I want to step into the next part of the day? Totally. Yeah. And particularly if you put it in that gap between work and home, it's so valuable. And the most common one we use is that walk before dinner. And as the sun's setting, we get that low light that's really good to help set your circadian rhythm. The dog's happy. The kids are happy. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you're really ticking a lot of boxes with that practice. And as you're speaking, what's coming to mind is the importance of creating the systems around this, not just thinking, oh, it's just going to happen, but actually being really clear, not only with ourselves, but the people that we live and work with, that this is our system and this is what we're working on and the why behind it. Yeah. And it's also setting up the environment to make it easy. And what I say to a lot of people is, if you do have a partner or if you do have kids or you live with someone else, go home and talk to them about this and put those systems in place. Like one of the things, if, if I'm really done and I can't do dinner, I just walk in and I go, kids, catch and kill. And what that means is if you can find something and eat it, that's what's happening. Dad's checked out. Sometimes my wife will walk in the door and she goes, I just need an hour to myself or I just need 10 minutes or I just need to lie down because I'm shattered. And we kind of support each other in that, run defense for each other. And it's about finding what works depending on what's going on. But I mean, as we've talked about before, it is such a portable, pliable concept. 
It sure is. And I'm smiling hard here, Adam, because I grew up in a catch and kill household. That's something that we did every now and then, being the youngest of four. Mum was working, dad was working. There'd be sometimes like catch and kill. Like honestly, a bowl of cereal, a bit of toast, a bit of avo. There is so much we can do. We don't have to have extravagant meals. And what it really brings to mind is the expectations we have on ourselves on how everything should be. And maybe a part of this is allowing our standards just to soften. Do we have to have the most nutritious meal every single night? You know, we have intense periods in our work. Can we look at that intense period a week or two ahead and think, you know what, I'm going to strategically cut myself some slack and do things a little bit differently that week? Yeah, and I often, we're focusing on food here, but I often look at the week and go, okay, how am I going to make this work? Because I'm away two nights, so what can I prepare so Chris can just reheat? And, you know, part of Saturday, it might be a couple of hours, is I just do a big cook-up, get everything sorted. Like it, it is about that systems and process. How do we make it easy for us? Yeah, so how do we make it a more pleasurable experience in the home because we're not angry or stressed out or overwhelmed? We're much more planned. And really that self-awareness piece of who am I being in this space and what impact am I having on other people? I often use the analogy of that Wi-Fi, like our young people are tapping into the Wi-Fi and is it broadband internet or is it the old school dial up a bit squeaky? I've got another presentation called the ripple effect and what it goes into is basically the mathematics of how groups operate and how people affect, how our behavior, how our mood affects people. And it's also looking at that of how am I showing up? I'd had a really bad day the other day and I still did my third space, but my wife just went, oh man, you got to go for another walk because if you come back like this, don't come back. She just went, I was just in the worst mood. I don't know what was wrong with me. I was niggling at the kids. I think I was like spoiling for an argument and she just went, okay, you just got to go. And after that, I went to the gym, trained really hard, came back, felt much better. And there's some days where she needs that from me, but it's just about, because we influence that home so much. And one of the things that drives up kids' anxiety the most is the stress level of their parents. And if you come in and you're in a bad mood, it's contagious to the rest of the house. So yeah, I mean, the benefit of this just runs so deep. And that's why it's so beautiful because it sounds so simple and it is simple, as far as the small transitions. And yet that ripple is so big, is so deep because it encourages us to get clear, to get deliberate. And the most important part is to get articulate, to actually articulate to other people. So other people in our environment aren't guessing as much. So we can have these conversations like, man, you look like you're under the pump here. Can I take your duty? And making that give and take really visible and obvious and it becomes the norm then instead of people feeling like no one's understanding, I'm underappreciated, I'm working harder than them, I'm busier than them and that internal conflict and war where this third space can help us be more collaborative, help us be more empathetic and be more present. Yeah, and look, I've seen people use it as a culture at work. You know, I was working with the collections department of Westpac Man, you talk, that's a contact center that talks to people all day who are in financial distress. And, oh, man. When I started this work, I think, oh, that's just people who have been frivolous and 
stretch themselves. But no, they're talking to people who are victims of violence, who are drug affected. So they can have really emotional days. And we did a lot of work around the third space of, well, after these emotional conversations, how do you go home? And even on the boom gate, they set up a little sign that said, remember, before you go home, do your third space. So as they're going out of the car park, that sign's there. I was doing some work with Camp Quality years ago and they put up a whiteboard near the exit. And as you left, you had to write something that was constructive about the day on the board. Like this went great or, yeah, my sister gave birth or we helped this family. Because obviously dealing with children who have cancer, it's just heartbreaking. But as they leave looking at, this is what we did today. This is what we achieved. Gosh, there was another one I was thinking of. Oh, that's right. Some of the paramedics took this concept and went, one of the things we don't do is debrief the day. We see some full-on stuff, but we're so busy we kind of rush off. And that reflect phase, they actually started to do that as small teams and just would just kind of go, so Meg, or as we're finishing shift, just checking in, how are you doing? And you might go, I'm fine. But someone else in the team might go, seen that accident a hundred times, but today that really hit me hard. And then we get the rest of the group to just debrief and talk. And what we specifically asked them to do was just name and validate, which is, I get that. Like I felt like that. I understand the way you feel or remember that interaction we had weeks ago. I'm still thinking about that. Because what often happened, because they didn't do the reflection, they go home feeling like, oh God, why did that upset me so much? I've got to be stronger. I'm too weak or I'm not cut out for this. And they're just inside their head, which obviously affects how they go home. But in that debrief where their colleagues are going, yeah, totally, I get that. I understand why you feel that way. That relieves so much stress. That takes the burden off them. Of course you feel that, or it's really normal to have that sort of reaction. They took it and almost put it on steroids in that, and if someone said, I'm really struggling, they would go, do I need to stay back and would talk a bit more? Or I know you have to go home and run the kids to piano lessons. Can we talk in the car? Or do you need to call EAP? Or tomorrow in the shift, let's really talk about this. So what they were doing is using it to increase their well-being and supporting their mental health and creating a culture of support. Yeah, which is so, so powerful. So, Adam, for a teacher listening, a school leader listening, thinking, I'm keen about this third space, what do you think they should do next? I mean, there's a few resources on my website, dradamfraser.com. There's uh, YouTube videos that talk about this concept. Obviously, we wrote the book, The Third Space, so that's a great resource because it goes into a lot more detail because we didn't just look at how do we go from work to home, but also we looked at, well, how do I go from a really upsetting experience to the next thing? And we talk about how you can use it in multiple areas of your life. So the book's probably, well, it's definitely the most comprehensive tool out there to start to apply this. And I'm just so excited to see what's possible this year for educators as they embrace their third space. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Adam, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, I wasn't briefed on this. I'm scared now. (laughs) I am inspired by. I'm inspired by educators. And the reason we do flourish is that I really like that group of people. And the reason I'm inspired by them is they're the best group to work with because they're 
intellectual and they're smart and they get concepts, but they're also really humble. So they're open to learning and they're sophisticated. Some groups that are very sophisticated are like, just try and teach me something. So that's why I love educators because they're curious and open as well as they can grasp really complicated concepts. When life feels hard? I exercise. I specifically, I swim in the ocean. An underrated skill is? Oh man, the thing that popped into my head is my ability to plait my daughter's hair. Took me so long to get that. I was shocking at it, but I'm crushing it now. Yeah, so hair care. And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to my next book coming out, which is called No Thanks, Kevin, and I'm currently writing it. Oh, I'm excited now. No, I'm looking forward to that. Adam, (laughs) thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for bringing our awareness to this important concept of the third space, and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast today. My pleasure. Adam's book, The Third Space, Using Life's Little Transitions to Find Balance and Happiness is now available online and in store. To learn more about Adam and the high-impact work he is doing in the world, see the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your colleagues and teacher friends. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school staff thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 113. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you soon. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.